Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Secretary of State Antony Blinken back in the Middle East for the fifth time since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, what the top diplomat aims to accomplish amid growing tensions. It's been just a couple of days since the bipartisan border bill was unveiled, but could support for its passage already be waning? What lawmakers are saying about it? New accusations of misconduct and prejudice against Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, a co-defendant in Georgia's election case, argues for her disqualification in a court filing yesterday. Former President Trump said he would impose tariffs on China if elected again in November. What this could mean for U.S. and China relations with the host of Entity Business. California hit with heavy rains, flooding, mudslides, disrupted travel, and hundreds of thousands with no power. The governor issuing a state of emergency. A face-off in Nevada between former President Trump and Nikki Haley, or not? Why Nevada has two separate contests and what this means for the two Republican candidates. Shenyun Performing Arts completes 10 shows in London, leaving audience members amazed at the artistry of the performance. Hear what they have to say. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, February 6th. And first of all, Antony Blinken has his hands full for sure this time. For one, um, Israel and Hamas can't agree on some of the key parts of negotiations when it comes to hostage release. Yeah, not only that, but Israel's not on board with the U.S. idea of a Palestinian state. And those Iran-backed fighters, they don't seem to be deterred by U.S. military pressure all that much. Right, and that's a part of our top news this morning because Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East for the fifth time since the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. The top diplomat met with Egypt's president in Cairo today and is heading for Qatar, then Israel next. Blinken was in Saudi Arabia yesterday to meet with the crown prince. Washington is pushing to normalize relations between Arab countries and Israel and stop the war in Gaza from spreading. The State Department says meetings are focused on advancing hostage ceasefire talks, humanitarian aid and plans for Gaza after the war. So for a closer look now at Blinken's visit, we bring in Alex Trayman. He's a Jerusalem bureau chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. Good morning, Alex. Good to see you. So first, Blinken, like I said, hands full. He also wants to reduce tensions and de-escalate the situation in the region. So tell me more about, uh, about the stops he's making there first to achieve this and the diplomatic efforts on this end. Well, Blinken has already landed in Egypt, and uh, after that he'll be in Qatar, and then he'll be in Israel, and he's definitely trying to advance uh, some kind of a deal that would enable Israel to get back uh, the over 136 hostages that are still inside Gaza, many of them uh, believed to be dead even at this point, uh, and also uh, negotiating with uh, Qatar, which has a tremendous uh, influence over Hamas, many of Hamas's leaders in that country. Uh, and what they're going to try to do is to arrange for a hostage 
exchange with the prisoner swap of uh, terrorists that are sitting in Israeli jails, uh, and then also to try to get as long of a humanitarian pause in the fighting as possible. But it's believed here in Israel that the, the goal of uh, Blinken on his trip is to, to try to negotiate as long a pause as possible uh, that would make it very, very hard for Israel to renew hostilities at the end of such an arrangement. And it's not likely that uh, Israel's life would be willing to agree uh, to such a pause at this time. So in terms of that hostage deal, Israel's prime minister, of course, is still talking about a total victory, while Hamas wants the end to the war, as you mentioned. So what kind of concessions do you think either side could be willing to, ma uh, to make to move, maybe move closer to a deal? Is that possible? I think the only way Israel would agree to such a deal is if they would get back uh, hostages uh, for a very, very limited pause. Uh, anything that's an extended pause, like we've heard about in recent reports of a six-week pause or something, is something that I think Israel is very, very unlikely to do uh, because they, they've expended so much energy and effort and lives on the ground in order to to get to where they've gotten so far, which is to take out about 75% of Hamas's uh, capabilities and, and the top leadership, that they're, they're not likely to stop unless they have a full victory that they can show their citizens. So if there should be, um, some sources say we might be moving closer, but if there should be a ceasefire in Gaza, how would that impact the broader situation in the Middle East? Some analysts were saying, for example, that it would take away reasons for other militant groups to carry out the attacks on U.S. bases. So can you talk a little more on um, how the hostage deal and the situation in Gaza could affect the broader situation there? Well, certainly many of the Iranian-backed proxies in the region, including the Houthis and Hezbollah and several other smaller proxies that are in Iraq and Syria and Jordan, have all said that they'll continue their attacks as long as Israel is, is operating inside of the Gaza Strip. Uh, and yet we see that uh, the, the tensions between Israel and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon uh, continue to, to ramp up uh, step by step by step. And it's believed that here inside Israel that uh, after uh, major hostilities conclude in Gaza, that the IDF is very, very likely to launch a ground incursion into southern Lebanon because Israel believes that Hezbollah is a much more potent threat uh, to the Jewish state than Hamas ever was. And Israel's already evacuated tens of thousands of citizens from their homes along the northern border and can't really return them until that threat's been eliminated. So one last question here before we wrap things up. Blinken also met with Saudi's crown prince, who said that they are still interested in Saudi-Israel normalization, but only with irrevocable steps toward a two-state solution. So how possible do you think that still is? I think it's really important to understand that the, the Saudis are less interested uh, in the Palestinian cause than the Americans. It's the Americans that are pushing uh, any kind of brokered uh, normalization between Israel that it must include uh, a Palestinian state or a path towards Palestinian statehood. Uh, but I don't think at this point that Israel is going to be bribed or blackmailed uh, with Saudi normalization. Saudi-Israel relations right now are very strong, stronger than most people realize. And formal normalization is something that will happen in its time, but not during a war. It will happen after the war is over, and it may happen even without any kind of steps that would aid the Palestinians towards statehood. Thank you, Alex Trayman, for your insights this morning. Thank you. The Senate border deal that would include aid to Ukraine and Israel now appears on shaky ground. This amid growing opposition from both Senate and House Republicans. 
NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what lawmakers are saying about the bill. The package seemed poised to be fast-tracked through the Senate, with the support of both Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. But the border security measures, including a provision that mandates a border shutdown when 5,000 illegal immigrants enter in a day, have drawn fierce blowback from conservatives. And in a turnaround, McConnell on Monday night recommended senators vote no to a procedural vote on Wednesday to begin debate on the bill. Senator James Lankford said the bill would make a significant difference in the way the U.S. handles asylum. For years, there have been loopholes that have been exploited in our asylum laws. This closes those loopholes so we can identify faster legitimate asylum seekers. Langford says the bill would increase deportation flights, detention, and rapidly change how hearings and screenings are done. So it doesn't take 10 years as it does now. It takes weeks to months so that we can turn people around faster. If you don't have rapid consequences, you don't have consequences at all. Senator Chris Murphy says the bill helps cities and their mayors by giving the migrants work permits so they don't end up in homeless shelters and on the street. It gives the president the power to shut down the border um, in between the ports of entry when crossings get too high. Congressman Chip Roy criticized that portion of the bill, which would impose automatic mandatory shutdowns if illegal entries hit a daily average of 5,000. If you set a standard of about 5,000, the cartels will go, ah, I get it, 4,999, 4, you got it. Senator Amy Klobuchar says the bill isn't everything everyone wanted, but says that's what compromise is about. What this bill does, it puts significant resources at the border, new technology and the like, to finally do something about fentanyl in addition to stopping this chaos at the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott criticized President Biden for saying he needs Congress to act to secure the border. Speaking on Fox News. There are laws uh, in the United States uh, that require the president to deny illegal entry. President Biden says he's disappointed that dreamers are left out of the border bill. The bill is likely to dash hopes for a quick, clear path to citizenship for hundreds of thousands of people brought into the U.S. illegally as children as Congress takes a harder line on immigration. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The $118 billion bipartisan bill allocates about $20 billion for border security-related measures. Let's take a look at how this money will be spent and the proposed changes to immigration policy. The bill will give $8 billion in emergency funding for immigration and customs enforcement, including $3 billion to increase detention capacity. Customs and Border Patrol will receive an additional $7 billion. That's on top of their annual budget of roughly $21 billion a year. More than $700 million would go toward hiring new Border Patrol agents and paying agents overtime. Additionally, the bill will provide $23 million to the DEA and $25 million to the State Department and USAID to counter fentanyl smuggling into the U.S. On top of that, $1.4 billion will be dispersed to help states and local governments handle the influx of illegal immigrants. The bill would also introduce an expedited process for asylum seekers, giving asylum officers emergency authority to screen applicants within 90 days of their arrival in the country, using a tougher standard, and for those who pass, decide cases within another 90 days. The goal is to make sure no asylum case reviews last longer than six months. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services would get $4 billion to hire more than 4,300 officers who would take on the work now reserved for immigration judges. 
The bill will also require Homeland Security to turn away all migrants if illegal crossings exceed 5,000 on average over seven days, or 8,500 in a single day. So if this new power were applied and you're apprehended between ports of entry, uh, if you seek asylum, you wouldn't be allowed to do that, and you could be rapidly deported from the United States back to Mexico. The bill mandates that the Biden administration would have to use the money already laid out for a border wall during the Trump years. It also includes an offer of permanent residency to Afghan nationals who fled the country after the Taliban takeover in 2021. The White House issued a statement yesterday strongly opposing the House resolution to impeach Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He calls impeachment unprecedented and unconstitutional and says it would be an act of political retribution. The statement goes on to say the grounds for impeachment have no basis in law or fact. Republican lawmakers say Mayorkas should be held responsible for failing to secure the southern border. A vote on whether to proceed with the impeachment effort is scheduled for later today in the House. And co-defendants and former President Trump's Georgia 2020 election case are stepping up efforts to disqualify Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. Several are arguing an evidentiary hearing needs to be held over allegations of misconduct. The Atlanta DA asked a judge to cancel a hearing set for next week. Willis says there is no conflict of interest in having a personal relationship with the lead prosecutor. The judge is still weighing his response. Another motion asking for Willis and her entire team to be disqualified was filed yesterday. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the requests. I am Fonnie Willis. I am the elected district attorney here in Fulton County. David Schaefer filed a motion Monday asking for Willis and her entire team to be dismissed. The alternate elector who cast a ballot for Trump and former Georgia GOP chair is accusing Willis of engaging in a pattern of prosecutorial forensic misconduct. The motion cites multiple news articles and interviews with Willis and claims all causes for disqualification are self-inflicted blows. It alleges Willis tried to influence the public and prospective jurors by referring to co-defendants as fake electors. The argument resembles one filed by Trump, accusing the DA of making extrajudicial statements meant to inject racial animus and prejudice into the case. Both motions highlight Willis's speech at Atlanta's Big Bethel Church last month. Defense attorneys call Willis's claim that she's doing God's work grossly improper, arguing she seems to suggest God opposes the motion to disqualify her and approves of her prosecutorial decisions. Schaefer also referenced allegations made by co-defendant Michael Roman around Willis's relationship with the special prosecutor she hired, Nathan Wade. Wade swore an affidavit his personal relationship with Willis began in 2022 and stated they never lived together. Roman's attorney in a filing last Friday told the judge an evidentiary hearing set for next week is needed because she has witnesses who can testify Wade and Willis had shared an apartment and were more than just friends as early as 2019. Schaefer in a separate motion asked for a change of venue, claiming he can't get a fair trial in Fulton County. Trump, seeking to stay on Colorado's GOP ballot, submitted his final written argument Monday to the U.S. Supreme Court. He noted unprecedented wins in the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary, arguing his disqualification would betray the nation's respect for democracy. Justices are set to hear oral arguments in the case Thursday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Mississippi's top court is scheduled to hear arguments today in a case involving a state law that would put $10 million of federal pandemic relief money into grants for private schools. A lower court judge blocked the law after a nonprofit group sued the state. The group argued the grants would give private schools a competitive advantage over public schools. The case started back in 2022 when Mississippi's House and Senate decided on how to spend nearly $2 billion of pandemic relief funds. 
One bill signed by Governor Tate Reeves created a grant program helping private schools pay for water, broadband and other infrastructure projects. Another bill earmarked $10 million of federal money for the program later that year. Public schools couldn't apply for the infrastructure grants. They could receive interest-free loans to improve buildings. Those loans must be repaid within 10 years. The grants to private schools would not need to be repaid. The state attorney general's office wrote in a filing to the Supreme Court that public school students have benefited massively from federal pandemic relief money, much more so than private schools. State attorneys also wrote that the Mississippi Constitution only prohibits sending money directly to private schools. Stay with us one year after the deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria, how locals are rebuilding their lives as they criticize government officials for not doing enough. In China, state-backed investors are dumping a lot of money into the country's stock market, maybe avoiding a downturn, but investors have doubts on for how long. Analysis on what this means for Americans. Welcome back. It's been one year since a deadly earthquake devastated parts of Turkey and Syria. Tens of thousands were killed and almost two million were left homeless. Residents are still dealing with the aftermath of the disaster. An anniversary vigil in Turkey today drawing protesters. They're criticizing the government for neglect in its response. In Turkey, more than 10,000 people held a vigil on Monday in Hatay, one of the cities hit hardest by last year's earthquake. Although it's been a year, the pain is still being felt by many. This is the echo of people's inner pain. It is an echo of how much people have suffered. There's no way to describe how to make up the pain here. Those people's hearts are bleeding. People are calling for local officials to resign. They say the health ministry failed to do its job by letting thousands die in the cold while waiting for help, and that the government isn't doing enough to help damaged cities recover. Many residents are attempting to rebuild their lives and businesses. The lack of proper buildings forced them to look for alternative solutions. This photographer is working out of a storage container. I had some money saved up and I had a motorcycle. I also sold it, then I had a container built and started buying a camera and other necessary equipment. I decided to prepare everything within a week and set it up in the second. Why did I do this? Because if I don't come, if nobody else does, then there will be no progress. One woman whose tailoring shop was destroyed in the quake is starting over. We do not harbor resentment against life. We cannot do that as we don't have the luxury. God willing, everything will go well and we will do better. We were very worn out in 2023 because of the earthquake. We experienced a lot of sadness and suffered a lot of losses. We lost our home and business. Despite everything, we continue to live. The magnitude 7.8 earthquake last year killed more than 50,000 people in Turkey, some 5,900 in Syria, and left millions homeless. According to Turkish officials, around 680,000 homes were destroyed in the region. 
More international news for an update on China's economy and stock market, which is seeing big sums of money pumped in by state-backed investors. Please welcome Kevin Freeman, the producer and host of Economic War Room and the author of Pirate Money. Kevin, first, explain what China's national team of these state-backed investors is. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. Oh, yes, Kevin, please first explain what China's national team of these state-backed investors is. Yeah, the national team of state-backed investors is some, similar to the plunge protection team that's established in the United States. It literally is state money that is being used to prop up Chinese shares. Uh, it's when the market falls, they expect this state team to start buying up stocks so they can produce higher prices. That is interesting because when we look back to 2015 and 16, when China's stock market crashed, that just led to the Chinese regime exerting more control over the economy. So is this state-backed buying keeping the Chinese stock market from taking a plunge here? Well, the Chinese stock market has taken a substantial plunge so far to date. There was a big rally last night, 5% across most of Asia, based on the hope that Xi Jinping will throw more money in or do other measures. But this is not a sustainable way for you to protect a stock market. I mean, unfortunately, investors in China and around the world have come to expect just regular and ongoing upward gains. That's not normal for stock markets. China is especially vulnerable because they depend on so much American capital and really Western capital. And the investors there in China are begging America, please come back. Uh, the rest of the world, please come back. So why have they left? Well, they've lost confidence in the Chinese governance. Literally, uh, they're seeing a nation that is flaunting international rules, trying to use the Belt and Road Initiative to advance their interests. This is not an economic-based regime. They used to say it was capitalism with Chinese characteristics. What, in fact, it was, was a Marxist uh, plan to control the world. So what does the regime's efforts here to bolster the stock market all mean for Americans? Well, if you're invested in China, then you're hoping that uh, you can get a little higher prices before you have to get out. But bottom line is uh, that American investors in China cannot expect that this is a brand new way of, of investing as they did five, 10 years ago. They said, oh, China is, is perfect in investing because it's a managed economy. No, capitalism has its rules and free markets have the, both their ups and their downs. So what's China's economy like right now, Kevin? China's economy is very weak. Uh, it's been built on a house of cards. It's been built on abuses of the system. It's been built on slave labor in some cases. It's been built on manipulation of, of foreign investors. Yeah, we've seen those allegations against companies like Timu selling these clothes for just like a few dollars, even, even pennies at times. And then also the collapse of Evergrande, the real estate developer there as well. So if China's economy does take a downturn, what does that mean for the United States and for the world? Well, it's normal to take downturns. China doesn't want to see them. The Chinese investors don't want to see them. So it's actually a threat to the regime. If the stock market continues to go down and people don't see any opportunity to advance their lives, it's a, you know, we look, beware the wounded dragon. Uh, what if uh, China becomes belligerent and takes military actions in order to take away attention from their falling stock market? That's a very dangerous position. That is a really serious risk that you mentioned there. So what's China's real estate market like right now and how does that affect its stock market? China's real estate market was massively overblown. 
it was a massive bubble. We've seen the bubble bursting and it, there's more pain to be endured in the real estate market from my perspective. Right. And why is that? Well, because, you know, if you overprice things, eventually what goes up must come down. Uh, there were ghost cities, a lot of real estate activity that was non-economic. It was for uh, cultural reasons or political reasons. The uh, massive move of people into cities. The net result is they monkeyed with their market so much. It's not a natural result. So the property market is overexpanded. And as a result, when the bubble bursts, everybody gets hurt. Yeah, and analysts like even James Gorey have told me that the CCP is not out to foster economic growth. They're out for power, and that's why they would tell companies like Evergrande just develop, keep developing, even if the demand's not there, and that led to all these problems. Kevin Freeman, producer and host of Economic War Room, thank you for your time. Thank you. And coming up next, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has requested secret service protection, citing multiple threats and security incidents. President Biden seeking union votes right before the primary in a key swing state, but former President Trump jumps ahead of Biden in new polling, the latest on the 2024 race. For the day's top headlines and the news you need to know, tune in right here to NTD Evening News. Thanks for staying with us. A Republican presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, has applied for a Secret Service protection following threats on the campaign trail. It's unclear when the former South Carolina governor made the request. She has had a visibly heightened security presence with her for roughly a week. There were reports of two swatting incidents in recent months at Haley's home in South Carolina, one of which occurred while her parents were there. That's when someone makes a hoax call to emergency services in order to dispatch a large number of armed police officers to a targeted location. The Secret Service provides protection only after it is authorized by the Secretary of Homeland Security, who consults with a congressional advisory committee. In May 2007, when Senator Barack Obama was placed under protection, giving the rising number of threats against him. President Biden and former President Trump both appealing to union workers as primaries are coming up in Nevada and South Carolina. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The Democratic primary in Nevada is happening on Tuesday, and President Biden spent his Monday touting his economic policies and seeking union votes in a key swing state in the 2024 race. Watch. I have a reputation and I'm proud of being the most pro-union president in American history. There's a simple reason for that. When unions are doing well, everybody does well. Not a joke. Back in 2020, Biden narrowly won Nevada by less than three percentage points. And Trump, meanwhile, is also appealing to union workers, including at an event last week here with the Teamsters. There's millions of people are pouring into the country. And that's a killer for the Teamsters. And I'm going to stop it. Well, Biden's been warning voters in Nevada about Trump's economic policies. Trump and his MAGA friends want to give another billion-dollar tax, multi-billion-dollar tax cut to the super wealthy and the biggest corporations. And the Biden-Trump feud continues to play out on Monday after Biden declined for a second straight year to do a pregame interview right before the Super Bowl. And Trump on Monday mocked Biden for doing that, adding that he's going to be happy to do it himself, replacing Biden, saying that would be ratings gold. 
Meanwhile, when it comes to the GOP race in Nevada, there won't be much real competition here as Nikki Haley and Trump are not even going to appear on the same ticket. Nikki Haley is taking part in the state-run primary on Tuesday, while Trump's participating in the party-run caucuses on Thursday. And only the results of the caucuses award delegates to the Republican nominee. And while Haley's campaign is saying that they're not going to even spend a dime or an ounce of energy on Nevada and will focus on South Carolina instead, Trump is widely expected to win there as well as he's leading Nikki Haley in the polls by double digits, even in her home state. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And Trump in an interview yesterday said he wants to debate President Biden immediately. Traditionally, there are three presidential debates running up to the general election. Trump says he wants to debate now for, in his words, the good of the country. And Nevada is holding its presidential primaries today. Biden and Haley are on the ballot, but not Trump, who will be participating in a caucus later this week. Two voters in the Silver State weighed in on who they're supporting. I'm very conservative. Like I said, I was a police officer for 34 years. Uh, I'm not real happy with the uh, federal government at this time. I, I, I'm concerned about uh, immigration, illegal immigration, uh, and things of that nature. I realize that he comes with a package uh, of issues. Uh, most human beings do. Uh, he hasn't done anything that I think a lot of other people have, have done. Um, he kept his word on everything he said he'd do. He did it. I'm all for Biden. <laughs> all for Biden. And I, I've seen, and, and like I've told you, I've seen um, the commitment of the government to fully support small businesses. Based from who I meet here at the restaurant, I think it's a mix. It's still, it's still half and half um, when it comes to um, the the demographics of the voters. I think it's it's still it's still an it's still like an, a difficult race to to predict. Former President Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley will face off again for the Republican presidential nomination in Nevada this week. But because of legal disputes and political tactics, there are actually two separate contests. And today's Andrew Thomas has the latest. The first contest is a state-run primary on February 6th. Haley chose to be on that ballot, even though she won't get any delegates from winning. This is an opportunity for Nikki Haley to build momentum by not only winning the Nevada primary, despite the fact that there aren't any delegates attached, um, but also being able to show her ability to draw from a broader range of different kinds of voters. The second vote is a caucus on February 8th, organized by the Nevada Republican Party. Only Trump will appear on that ticket. And because only candidates participating in the party-run caucus can compete for the state's 26 delegates, Trump is expected to win all of them. The Trump camp had gone um, sort of all over the country working on these state parties to try to get rule changes that would benefit the Trump camp. And Nevada is an example of a place where this definitely worked. A state law mandates that a primary must be held, but the Nevada GOP voted to stick with a caucus. This conflict resulted in two competing ballots. Caucuses tend to benefit candidates who have maybe not as big of a base, but a very highly motivated base. And I think that is a good way to 
describe um, Trump supporters here in Nevada. Trump has almost clinched the nomination after victories in Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley has vowed to stay in the race. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Well, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris lead the presidential race for Democrats. The big question on the Republican side is who Trump would pick as his potential VP. And today's David Lamb went to ask people near the Wall Street District in New York City. Here are some of the responses. Who do you think Trump will choose as his vice president? Nikki Haley. And why do you say that? Because um, he needs women. And I think he thinks, first of all, I think he probably thinks he can control her. And I think he wants a woman to be his running mate. The name I've seen the most is Tim Scott. So I'm, I guess I'm going to go with Tim Scott. Vivek, yeah. I definitely believe Vivek, yeah. And then why do you say that? Because they stand, they stand against the same exact things and they stand they stand with the same values you get me so they have basically the same values and the same principles and morals as each other you get me and as other Americans you know because we're kind of sick and tired of Joe Biden and the Democrats just ruining everything I think you should choose really someone who's who can take up this responsibility and not make a lot of mess mess, mess ups that have happened before Biden's VP right now another term you know it could change the, the conversation but I'm not not enough for me to vote for Trump. I don't think so. We'll see who he chooses. I don't know who he will pick. Um, I'm hoping he doesn't get a chance to pick a vice president. Um, I think our country has had probably enough of Donald Trump. I think uh, I think he will choose a female, though, because I think there are a lot of females of water. And then, uh, yeah, I think that uh, he needs to, to, to win the election. Turning away from politics to look at the weather for a moment, a major storm lashed California with heavy raining yesterday, causing flooding, mudslides and power outages across the Golden State. The National Weather Service said a staggering 10 inches or more of rainfall swamped the Los Angeles area since Sunday. Officials on Monday reported traffic collisions, mudslides and stranded motorists. The rain causing widespread flooding. In San Diego, the mayor issued evacuation warnings for residents in low-lying areas. Across the state, hundreds of trees fell from winds that reached over 100 miles per hour. At least three deaths have been reported as a result of trees falling on people, according to the LA Times. Thousands of flights in and out of California were canceled. The Pacific Coast Highway was also closed in places. During the peak of the storm, over a million lost power. As of Monday, 350,000 statewide were still without power. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in eight Southern California counties. President Biden said he was working closely with Newsom to get resources mobilized. The record-setting rain does come with a silver lining. Experts say it'll improve water levels, provide drought and wildfire resistance, and help fish habitats. Coming up next, former President Trump saying he would consider imposing tariffs of 60% or higher on Chinese goods if he wins a second term in office. What that would mean for both countries if implemented. Did the White House pressure Amazon to censor books related to COVID-19 vaccines? A Republican congressman says it did. See the internal communication he provided to make his case after the break.
And we have with us now NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest update from the financial world. So Don, what do you have for us about Trump and China? Okay, so uh, what I wanted to talk about today is a little bit about what he said on Fox Business in regards to his uh, policy with China if he's reelected. And I think this is relevant because of you know what's happening with the Chinese economy uh, as we've seen right now. So uh, he was asked about a report uh, talking about whether he's going to impose 60% uh, tariffs on Chinese goods. Now that is a lot, 60%. And he said that you know we have to do it. That's a quote from him. And he went further to say maybe that uh, he he's going to go even higher than 60%. Uh, so his position is that China has really taken advantage of the U.S. I mean, we've seen instances where Chinese companies are uh, exporting products to the U.S. and they make them very, very cheap. And you know what? Sometimes this is state-backed as well. And this hurts American businesses because people end up buying Chinese goods uh, instead of supporting American uh, industries. So the theory, theory here is that uh, if you uh, levy Chinese tariffs, uh, this is going to make American products more competitive and this is going to protect the American in industry. And the Trump administration actually began uh, doing this back in 2018. And the Biden administration actually uh, largely kept the tariffs in place. Interesting. Let, well, not let's not even mention the effects it could have on the Chinese economy, as we just heard earlier on the house of cards economy that some analysts call it. But U.S. trade relations are uh, U.S.-China trade relations already are pretty strained. So, what what would tariff tariffs like this? How would they escalate the trade war between China and the U.S.? Well, actually, we've seen something like this a few years ago when Trump uh, imposed tariffs. Uh, on China uh, back when he was in office. And what China did was they retaliated with tariffs of their own, and that just escalated into a trade war between the the two countries. And I think that's what led to the U.S.-China trade deal. Uh, I, I, we can think of that basically as a trade armistice. It prevented the war from escalating further. Uh, you know, China agreed to buy at least $227 billion of U.S. exports in 2020, and then $274 billion in 2021. But it seems like the country never actually delivered on those promises. Um, but speaking of a deal, Japan, actually uh, America's uh, closest ally in Asia, cautioned Trump against making another deal uh, like this with China or some any other kind of deal. And the, the concern was that uh, some kind of deal could undermine the recent efforts by the group of seven countries uh, to rein in China and to counter Beijing. Uh, Japan doesn't want China to be emboldened anyway, potentially because of a deal. And this is according to Japan's foreign ministry officials and other unnamed officials. Um, so Trump has said he's going to impose tariffs on China, but Japan is actually also worried that uh, the U.S. may impose some kind of protectionist rules against Japan, because as Trump has said, uh, his policy is America first. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about Japan, Nippon Steel, takeover of U.S. Steel. Now, if Trump went into office, he said that he's actually going to block that deal in, in his uh, America first policy. Very interesting, Don. And of course, there's two sides of the coin here. I mean, Trump's trade war with China saw $250 billion put on this tariffs on Chinese goods. And then a lot of that money went to American farmers, which is good. But a conservative think tank, American Action Forum, it says that those retaliatory tariffs that China puts on and those export restrictions that it does cost Americans about a quarter million jobs and about $200 billion. So you got to look at all sides of this here. Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Thank you. Thank you.
Stay with us. Congressman Jim Jordan says Amazon caved into pressure from the White House to censor books related to COVID-19 vaccines in early 2021. That's according to new emails obtained by subpoena. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the allegations. Congressman Jim Jordan says internal Amazon documents were obtained through subpoena by the House Judiciary Committee and the Government Weaponization Subcommittee. Jordan dubbed the internal Amazon documents the Amazon Files. He says the never-before-released internal emails reveal that the Biden White House pressured Amazon to censor books that expressed views the administration did not approve of. The congressman shared email communication where an Amazon official asks, is the Biden administration asking us to remove books? Jordan wrote on X that Andy Slavitt, a former White House senior advisor for COVID response, was pressuring Amazon at the same time. The congressman says Slavitt wrote an email in March 2021 demanding to know who he and his White House colleagues could talk to at the company about the high levels of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation of Amazon. According to Jordan, the White House ran keyword searches for controversial topics such as vaccine to conclude that there was propaganda and misinformation in books sold in Amazon's bookstore and then emailed Amazon when it didn't like how the search results appeared. Jordan says Amazon decided to hold off on doing a manual intervention to censor books at first, not out of any commitment to free speech, but because doing so would be too visible to the American public and likely to spur criticism from conservative media. Jordan wrote that Amazon originally resisted the White House pressure. The company argued that retailers are different than social media communities and that Amazon provides customers with access to a variety of viewpoints, adding that its company guidelines do not specifically address content about vaccines. But eventually, the company implemented a Do Not Promote directive on so-called anti-vax books on the same day Amazon representatives met with the White House. In March, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case initiated by attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana. They alleged that the Biden administration collaborated with social media firms to stifle freedom of speech concerning the COVID-19 pandemic. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Serious allegations, especially when it comes to censorship, should always be taken serious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And especially considering the fact that so many people buy their books from Amazon because it's such a big seller. Precisely. Yeah, good point. And we're going to go to break now. Shen Yun Performing Arts completes 10 shows in London, leaving audience members amazed at the artistry of the performance. Hear what they had to say coming up. capital asking the important questions so that you're in the know. Join us daily Monday through Friday on the Capitol Report on NTD News.
Thank you for staying with us. Shen Yun Performing Arts dazzled audience members at London's Eventim Apollo Theatre. The dance and music company just completed 10 shows there, with some theatregoers saying they felt transported to another world. The way they do it in sequence with each other, that to me is most fantastic because it, I'm looking to see whether one of them steps out of place and there was not one piece, uh, you know, one position that I could see them out of place of. It's not through the words, it's through the expressive movements, it's through the, the song, the music, and it just it gives me tingles. It's really, really special. China's rich history goes back 5,000 years. Shen Yun's mission is to revive it. Under communist rule, it was almost lost. Shen Yun performances also include stories from modern-day China. People need to know what China was like before communism, before they were so oppressed. And I think they're very brave to come out here and tell it, and tell their stories so that other people know what's happening and what's happened to them. A seamless blend of dancing, live music and a 3D backdrop transports the audience from ancient dynasties to heavenly scenes. I almost felt as if I was transported to a different realm, you know, of celestial beings. That's how it, it felt. It was magical. This is totally unbelievable. This is the one-off. There's, there's no other show like it in the world that I have encountered. Don't change it in any way. Your performance was fantastic. Audiences across the world have been touched by Shen Yun's energy, purity and athletic beauty. Shen Yun is continuing to revive China's authentic culture on its 2024 UK tour. Shen Yun's London shows are coming to a close, but it will continue its UK tour in cities including Liverpool and Manchester. Jane Merrill, NTD News, London. Talk of celestial beings, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it looks beautiful, definitely. And we actually have something special coming up on that because in a first and exclusive interview with NTD, Jesse Browdy, a principal dancer of Shenyun Performing Arts, tells us about life as a dancer for the world-renowned classical Chinese dance company. What was the training process like and how did classical Chinese dance become his career of choice? And we were also jo joined by his dad who recalled the difficult decision to send his then-teenage son away to school and how he knew it was the right choice. Watch the full interview exclusively on Entity Good Morning this Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely interesting to hear, you know, how much work and what kind of work each individual puts into a big show like that. And of course, also the parents' stress and nerves before sending their child away. Yeah, so, so give us a little bit of insight on what he was saying. Oh, I mean, it's it was because... I don't, I don't want to tease too much, but you know, uh, Jesse was there talking about what his uh, routine would look like during a day and how his first moments were in the school versus years on what, you know, the meaning he found in his dance and of course his dad, you know, um, the worries he had and then versus also years on um, when he had finally that sigh of relief and that moment of, oh, I did the right thing. Wow. Yeah, you got to be really diligent for something yeah. like that. So quite a journey and very deep things we were able to talk about. Um, but right now we are heading into a quick break, but we'll be back in just a minute. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. 
Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories today. It's been just a couple of days since the bipartisan border bill was unveiled, but could support for its passage already be waning? We hear what lawmakers are saying about it. The White House criticizes GOP efforts to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. More on the condemnation and House impeachment resolution vote later today. New York City police arrest seven illegal immigrants last night accused of stealing over 60 phones from women on the street. Secretary of State Antony Blinken back in the Middle East for the fifth time since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. What the top diplomat aims to accomplish amid growing tensions. New accusations of misconduct and prejudice against Fulton County DA Fani Willis. A co-defendant in Georgia's election case argues for her disqualification in a court filing yesterday. Can kindness be good for business? An author and international speaker tells us it can. And also how kindness helped her recover after breaking both of her ankles. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Tuesday, February 6th. And our top news today, Senate border deal that would include aid to Ukraine and Israel now appears on shaky ground. This amid growing opposition from both Senate and House Republicans. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what lawmakers are saying about the bill. The package seemed poised to be fast-tracked through the Senate, with the support of both Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. But the border security measures, including a provision that mandates a border shutdown when 5,000 illegal immigrants enter in a day, have drawn fierce blowback from conservatives. And in a turnaround, McConnell on Monday night recommended senators vote no to a procedural vote on Wednesday to begin debate on the bill. Senator James Lankford said the bill would make a significant difference in the way the U.S. handles asylum. For years, there have been loopholes that have been exploited in our asylum laws. This closes those loopholes so we can identify faster legitimate asylum seekers. Lankford says the bill would increase deportation flights, detention, and rapidly change how hearings and screenings are done. Congressman Chip Roy criticized that portion of the bill, which would impose automatic mandatory shutdowns if illegal entries hit a daily average of 5,000. If you set a standard of about 5,000, the cartels will go, ah, I get it, 4,999, 4, you got it. Senator Amy Klobuchar says the bill isn't everything everyone wanted, but says that's what compromise is about. What this bill does, it puts significant resources 
at the border, new technology and the like, to finally do something about fentanyl in addition to stopping this chaos at the border. President Biden says he's disappointed that dreamers are left out of the border bill. The bill is likely to dash hopes for a quick, clear path to citizenship for hundreds of thousands of people brought into the U.S. illegally as children as Congress takes a harder line on immigration. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And for analysis on whether the Senate's bill on border security and foreign aid is good for you, we hear from Richard Stern, the director of the Federal Budget Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. He's also a former budget advisor to Congressman Mike Johnson. Richard, welcome to the show. What's in the Senate's border security bill? Thank you for having me on today. Well, so I think from our standpoint, unfortunately, it's a disappointment. So what's in the bill on the border part of it is a lot of money for non-government organizations, for NGOs, that actually helps settle people in the United States. Frankly, they help facilitate the human trafficking that we're seeing. They help facilitate the move of illegal drugs and arms and, and terrorists across the border. There's very little money in the bill that actually goes to border security. And, you know, I, I think what Klobuchar was talking about there actually makes the point. It's a compromise between people who want to secure the border and people who don't want to secure the border. And so it's no compromise at all because it leaves the border wide open. It leaves a flood of drugs and illegal aliens and terrorists, frankly, coming across the border. And it really does almost nothing to actually do things that we know would secure the border or enact the policies that Trump had had in place that did secure the border. So it's, it's quite the disappointment. That's very interesting, Richard. It sounds a little bit counterintuitive, given that the name is Border Security Package here. This bill provides $60 billion in aid to Ukraine, 14 for Israel, and 20 for the border. So can you elaborate a little bit more on whether or not this is good for American taxpayers? Yeah, so I think once you get past the border provisions of the bill, frankly, it gets a lot worse. So think of it this way. The entire bill is $118 billion, as you were talking about. The vast majority of it isn't about the border or anything going on here it's aid to foreign countries. Now, $118 billion is a tremendous increase in federal spending. It would be a tremendous increase in kind of immediate spending. That's gonna put even more pressure on inflation, on interest rates. So Americans are gonna see that in rising prices. They're gonna see that in mortgages being even more unattainable for millions of Americans. So, you know, there's plenty of wasteful spending in the government. There are plenty of ways we could pay for this if you really felt we needed this money for key allies like Israel. But the truth is even then, let's take a look at the 60 billion for Ukraine. More than half of that money isn't going to military aid. It's actually going to civilian pensions in Ukraine. It's going to fund civilian operations of the government in Ukraine. So, you know, it's not even supporting an ally during a war. It, it's literally going to the parts of the government that do anything but defend Ukraine. So, you know, I think the more you look at the bill, it's inflationary deficits, it's interest driving deficits, it's money to, to handle civilian operations, it's money that's going to places where we don't have good tabs on where it's going, it's not going to secure the border, and it's an enormous amount of money to be spending. I mean, if you think about this way, we've spent more than a year trying to cut $12 billion out of the annual appropriations process. This would just be $118 billion like that with almost no debate in Congress. Well, thank you for helping us unpack what's inside this bill here. And I will point out that the bill provides measures to shut down the border when crossings arrive at 5,000 5, people per day. So what do you make of this? So again, and you know, I agree with what Congressman Chip Roy said there. It leaves a huge volume of people that can flood in 
outside the proper rules. You know, so when Trump was president, for example, one of the things that he had asked for, and frankly, conservatives in Congress had tried to work towards, was money on the table for more judge teams, was money on the table for completing the wall, for having drones, for having border security agents, right? And so if Border Patrol has the resources they need, if ICE has the resources they need, Mexico, by the way, was working with his government to keep people in Mexico until they could cross the border. Then what you got was a flood, not of 5,000 people a day, but of zero people a day. It meant that people could come, they could put in asylum claims, that we had the resources on our side to actually go through and adjudicate which were real and which were fake asylum claims. And we could go through and make sure that people came in through ports of entry, not just randomly crossing the border. In fact, the U.S. is really the only modern industrial country that has anybody really crossing the border illegally. This is something that essentially no other country on the planet tolerates. So, you know, I I think the fact that the bill authors would even suggest that 5,000 a day is a proper number to just flood across the border outside of any, you know, port of entry, any rules, any process, I mean, it's absurd, frankly. And we could do better than that. Well, Richard Stern at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your analysis on this. Thank you as always. The White House issued a statement yesterday strongly opposing the House resolution to impeach Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It calls an impeachment unprecedented and unconstitutional and says it would be an act of political retribution. The statement goes on to say the grounds for impeachment have no basis in law or fact. Republican lawmakers say Mayorkas should be held responsible for failing to secure the southern border. A vote on whether to proceed with the impeachment effort is scheduled for later today in the House. And in New York City, police arrested a group of illegal immigrants last night accused of stealing purses and phones, uh, over 60 phones, I should say, from women on the street. The NYPD carried out a search warrant in the Bronx, arresting seven suspects. Police released a video of a woman being knocked over and dragged when a thief tries to grab her back. Authorities say they believe the suspects are all from Venezuela. They're expected to be charged with multiple robberies and grand larcenies. Investigators say the thieves are trying to access the phone's Apple Pay feature and make purchases using linked credit cards. And coming up next, Secretary of State Antony Blinken back in the Middle East for the fifth time since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, what the top diplomat aims to accomplish amid growing tensions. New accusations of misconduct and prejudice against Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. A co-defendant in Georgia's election case argues for her disqualification in a court filing yesterday. Congressman Chris Smith is sounding the alarm over the WHO's new pandemic treaty. More on the New Jersey representative's demands and concerns. An author tells us about the strength of showing kindness and how treating each other well can actually be good for business in just a moment. Good to have you back. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East for the fifth time since the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. The top diplomat met with Egypt's president in Cairo today and is heading for Qatar, then Israel next. 
To learn more, I spoke with Alex Trayman. He's the Jerusalem bureau chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. I asked him about the steps Blinken's taken to de-escalate the conflicts in the Middle East. Well, Blinken has already landed in Egypt, and uh, after that he'll be in Qatar, and then he'll be in Israel. And he's definitely trying to advance uh, some kind of a deal that would enable Israel to get back uh, the over 136 hostages that are still inside Gaza, many of them uh, believed to be dead even at this point, uh, and also uh, negotiating with uh, Qatar, which has a tremendous uh, influence over Hamas, many of Hamas's leaders in that country. Uh, and what they're going to try to do is to arrange for a hostage exchange with a prisoner swap of uh, terrorists that are sitting in Israeli jails, uh, and then also to try to get as long of a humanitarian pause in the fighting as possible. But it's believed here in Israel that the, the goal of uh, Blinken on his trip is to, to try to negotiate as long a pause as possible uh, mm -hmm. that would make it very, very hard for Israel to renew hostilities at the end of such an arrangement. And it's not likely that uh, Israel's like would be willing to agree uh, to such a pause at this time. So in terms of that hostage deal, Israel's prime minister, of course, is still talking about a total victory, while Hamas wants the end to the war, as you mentioned. So what kind of concessions do you think either side could be willing to, ma uh, to make to move, maybe move closer to a deal? Is that possible? I think the only way Israel would agree to such a deal is if they would get back uh, hostages uh, for a very, very limited pause. Uh, anything that's an extended pause, like we've heard about in recent reports of a six-week pause or something, is something that I think Israel's very, very unlikely to do uh, because they, they've expended so much energy and effort and lives on the ground in order to to get to where they've gotten so far, which is to take out about 75% of Hamas's uh, capabilities and, and their top leadership, that they're, they're not likely to stop unless they have a full victory that they can show their citizens. Thank you, Alex Trayman, for your insights this morning. Thank you. Co-defendants in former President Trump's Georgia 2020 election case are stepping up efforts to disqualify Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. Several are arguing an evidentiary hearing needs to be held over allegations of misconduct. The Atlanta DA asked a judge to cancel a hearing set for next week. Willis says there is no conflict of interest in having a personal relationship with the lead prosecutor. The judge is still weighing his response. Another motion asking for Willis and her entire team to be disqualified was filed yesterday. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the requests. I am Fonnie Willis. I am the elected district attorney here in Fulton County. David Schaefer filed a motion Monday asking for Willis and her entire team to be dismissed. The alternate elector who cast a ballot for Trump and former Georgia GOP chair is accusing Willis of engaging in a pattern of prosecutorial forensic misconduct. The motion cites multiple news articles and interviews with Willis and claims all causes for disqualification are self-inflicted blows. It alleges Willis tried to influence the public and prospective jurors by referring to co-defendants as fake electors. The argument resembles one filed by Trump, accusing the DA of making extrajudicial statements meant to inject racial animus and prejudice into the case. Both motions highlight Willis's speech at Atlanta's Big Bethel Church last month. Defense attorneys call Willis's claim that she's doing God's work grossly improper, arguing she seems to suggest God opposes the motion to disqualify her and approves of her prosecutorial decisions. Schaefer also referenced allegations made by co-defendant Michael Roman around Willis's relationship with the special prosecutor she hired, Nathan Wade. Wade swore in affidavit his personal relationship with Willis began in 2022 and stated they never lived together. 
Roman's attorney in a filing last Friday told the judge an evidentiary hearing set for next week is needed because she has witnesses who can testify Wade and Willis had shared an apartment and were more than just friends as early as 2019. Schaefer in a separate motion asked for a change of venue, claiming he can't get a fair trial in Fulton County. Trump, seeking to stay on Colorado's GOP ballot, submitted his final written argument Monday to the U.S. Supreme Court. He noted unprecedented wins in the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary, arguing his disqualification would betray the nation's respect for democracy. Justices are set to hear oral arguments in the case Thursday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith sounding the alarm on the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty. He held a press conference yesterday highlighting concerns over potential WHO overreach, infringement on U.S. sovereignty, and a host of other issues. The treaty, announced in March of 2021, aims to enhance international cooperation to improve preparedness for the next potential pandemic. But Smith said far too little scrutiny has been given to the agreement. The treaty, which will be legally binding, promises a sustainable funding mechanism that will rely on annual monetary contributions to the WHO. It's unclear, Smith said, whether the Biden administration intends to submit this treaty agreement to the Senate for its approval. Whether it's Ebola, HIV, AIDS, cholera, or COVID-19, or any other pandemic we've had to face, Americans have been extremely generous and have relied on U.S. agencies, which are accountable to the American people, to make recommendations and decisions concerning allocation of funds, not unelected bureaucrats at WHO in New Jersey. Alongside Smith were several experts, all of whom laid out their concerns with the proposed treaty. A section of the treaty would require countries to implement pandemic prevention and public health service plans that are consistent with international health regulations. I submit to you that it's going to be done through vaccine passports, although they're not going to call them vaccine passports, they're going to call them digital IDs. The purpose of these IDs, the WHO says, is to monitor if people are sick and whether they are vaccinated. But Little John says their scope could be much broader. But these, but if you look on the World Economic Forum website, there's a chart about what you're going to have to have a digital ID to do, which is access health care, uh, travel, have a bank account, shop online, pay your taxes, vote. Smith said the new treaty would give the WHO unprecedented power. And when, if and when there is a pandemic, they will be able to say to country X, Y, and Z, uh, we demand, we don't ask, we demand, we don't request, we demand at least 20% of the cost uh, of that pandemic, you know, the, the, whatever it is, that, uh, vaccinations that have to be paid for, uh, we take it, we now control it, and we disseminate it. The congressman is demanding that more questions be asked at WHO before Americans accept any agreement from the international body. Something more uplifting to, for the end of the show, being kind to others gives more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It can actually make companies more productive, according to Jill Lublin, the author of The Profit for Kindness. She tells us more about this and how kindness helped her in her recovery after unfortunately breaking both of her ankles on a business trip to Vancouver, Canada. Mm, it's great to be here. And Kindness played into my recovery because the reality was I couldn't have recovered 
if so many people weren't kind to me. I actually had an accident and I had a coach who stopped the payments. He said, until you get back on your feet, literally. And uh, I had assistance, I had support, I had a team because no longer could I you know, be superwoman and do everything. I really had to have people be kind to me. It was an amazing, open, eye-opening. I'm so glad that that all worked out for you and that you were able to get the support that you need so that you can go on and do great things telling people about kindness. So how does kindness translate into leadership skills? Mm, well, you know, what I noticed in writing The Prophet of Kindness is that kind companies, well, they have happier employees, they have happier customers, they tend to do great on the bottom line. I noticed that uh, companies that, that I consult with, same thing. When there are kindness programs in place or there are kind cultures, the well, everybody's happier. You know, kindness is free and yet it produces great results. That is amazing. And we all know of the golden rule, but what's the platinum rule? Oh, the platinum rule is a conscious act of kindness every single day, right? If Imagine the world if we all did one thing, just one thing every single day, simple as smiling at someone, simple as holding the door, bringing something to the neighbor, you know, that that would make a world, literally, a world of difference. They say that the golden rule is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But isn't there this concept of doing unto others what they want to have done to them? Mm. You know, I think the reality is the, the thing we all have in common is that we understand kindness. We understand what it feels like when someone is kind to you. So, you know, if you just do that more than the golden rule even, and, and act in a kind way ongoingly and consistently, that will make you know, such a, a great world and we need a better world right now. I think we all know that and we also all know what it feels like to be kind and to receive kindness. All those acts of kindness can add up. So Jill, what is kindness not? Oh, well, I would tell you, Again, it's something you'll know when someone isn't kind, you know, you're driving down the highway and someone, well, cuts in front of you or gives you a bad signal, let's say, you're going to know that's unkind, but, you know, perhaps the kindest thing to do is just let them in. Um, you know, kindness is someone cutting in front of you in line. I remember reading something the other day and, and uh, somebody said, well, obviously you're in, a, you're in a hurry more than I am, so go ahead and... and Get in front of me, please. Now, that's the kind thing to do to some rude action. And Jill, kindness doesn't mean weakness. Can you explain? Yeah, you know, it's not a rollover kind of thing. I mean, I remember being on a cruise ship and a woman came into the spa and she was, shall we say, yelling at the, at the spa person behind the desk. And the woman said, you know, people are here to relax. Your strong voice and intense tone is taking away from the relaxation. Why don't we come into another room and I will listen to everything you say and let's resolve this problem. That is not weak, that's very strong, that's very powerful, and that's very kind, but also takes somebody who wasn't kind in another place. So it, it is about having boundaries and, and being kind even in those boundaries. Jill Lublin, the author of The Prophet of Kindness, thank you for your time. Thank you. What a great interview, yeah. And I love how, how she said, or how you brought it up too, that kindness isn't weakness. Because a lot of times it's just a matter of 
knowing or being aware that other people live and operate in such a much larger context that we could ever be aware of, right? Yes, one form of strength. And to that platinum rule, do unto others as they would want have done to them. For example, there's this career website that's showing that if this communication style, if someone wants detailed instructions, then make sure to go and provide that with them and then they can do better in their job. Oh, yeah, interesting. Look at that, has a business um, benefit here as well. So uh, right now we are reaching the end of our show, but we'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.